that had a profound effect on me, that a Canadian could win a silver medal in the Olympics. I thought, wow, would I ever like to do that? From there, I went on to some unimaginable accomplishments. That was Dennis Lang, and this is episode 44 of the Inspired Souls podcast. Hi, I'm Carolyn, and I'm a roadrunner. And I'm Kim, and I'm a trail runner. Welcome to our podcast, where we bring the communities of trail and road running together and explore the parallels between running and life. With the Tokyo Olympics set to start in just a few days, we feel today's conversation with Dennis Lang could not be more fitting. Now 70 years old, he opens with a story from when he was just 13 years old about watching a Canadian win a silver medal on the track at the Tokyo Olympics in 1964, and how that was the first of several pivotal moments that shaped the rest of his running life. Through decades of hard work and dedication, Dennis would eventually go on to achieve his own silver and bronze medals for Canada on the world stage. This story is one of passion, perseverance, planning, and most of all, patience. Dennis had us on the edge of our seats during this hour of exceptional storytelling, but his underlying message is one we can all stand to hear on repeat. You don't have to be gifted to be great, seize the opportunities before you, keep on showing up, and you just never know where life will take you. Be sure to listen right to the very end to hear a hilarious story about the 1988 Bay to Breakers race in San Francisco. And now on to our conversation with Dennis Lang. Well, Dennis Lang, it is a pleasure to welcome you to the Inspired Souls podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you, uh, Kim and Carolyn, for inviting me. This should be fun. It should be fun. Yes. So Kim and I are really, really excited to dive into your running story because we think you actually have a pretty unique perspective on things as someone, you know, who ran before and after the running boom, the running boom of kind of the mid 1970s to the early 1980s and all of the changes that that brought. Uh, with it. But before we kind of dive into all of that, can you maybe just introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about Dennis Lang. Yes, I sure can. Well, age-wise, I'm a very young 70-year-old, and I'm a lifelong resident of uh, Winnipeg, Canada. I just turned 70 last month, so I'm very excited about being in a new uh, age group uh, for Masters. I'm uh, five feet, five inches tall, which interestingly is the same height as Heidi Gabriel Selassie and uh, Kenanisa Bekele, who were the two greatest uh, distance runners in history. And I'm about <laughs> 120 pounds. And I it, uh, believe it or not, I've never been more than uh, in the 120s my entire life. So I'm still at the same weight that I was in, in university. Wow. Uh, I'm married. I'm married and I live with uh, my non-athletic, wonderful wife, but we, we have no children. I'm a graduate of the University of Manitoba, and I worked as an accountant until I retired in my mid-50s, which gave me a lot of time to focus on training and a lots of time to rest and recover between sessions. Um, I discovered competitive running at age 13 quite by accident and expect to continue running until my body is unable to handle it or if ever that happens. Now, as a youth, growing up in the North End of Winnipeg, I participated in a lot of sports and would describe myself as being athletically inclined. But I was always very small for my age. 
I was, however, physically strong and durable and was always very active as a child and a youth. No computer games or texting or couch potato for me. Uh, you don't see that today, but I'm sure that was a factor in my eventual uh, accomplishments. So the story I'm about to share with you tonight is, I feel, uh, a story about an ordinary person doing some extraordinary things. And isn't that what life is really about? Absolutely. Amen to that. Yes. And you know, you've just said something that so many of our guests have have said as soon as we've invited them on the podcast. I'm just an ordinary person. Who would want to hear my story? But ordinary people can do extraordinary things. And I definitely think our listeners are going to enjoy hearing some of your stories this evening. So mm-hmm. thank you for joining us. Yes. Well, let's hear that that inaugural story of, of how you became inspired to run when you were 13 years old. Yes. Well, uh, my story as a runner is really one of, I would say, passion, perseverance, serendipity, and I'd have to believe faith. Now, serendipity is the occurrence of events by chance in a happy and beneficial way. It has played a huge role in my life as a runner. And my first encounter with serendipity occurred when I was just 13 years old. I came home from school one day and turned on the television to watch my normal after-school programming. But something else was on called the Olympic Games from Tokyo, Japan. And the event that they were hosting at that moment was the men's 800 meters final. And as I was watching, they announced a Canadian, Bill Carruthers, in the event. And when they said Canadian, I said, you know, I'm going to watch this. Even though we only, we only had three channels, so it wasn't a lot to watch. But I didn't turn it off because there was a Canadian in the event. And a little over, a little under two minutes later, Bill Carruthers wins the silver medal for Canada. And for whatever reason, that had a profound effect on me, that a Canadian could win a silver medal in the Olympics. Yeah. And I had never thought about running before in my life, but I thought, wow, would I ever like to do that? So after dinner, I went outside And I practiced running around my block, envisioning that I was running for Canada in the Olympic Games. So that evening, I became three things. I became a lifelong runner. I became a lifelong student of running. And I I became a lifelong fan of track and field and later road running. So that, that really changed my life. That winter... I read all the books I could at the local library on track and field and the Olympic Games. And the following spring, I participated in my first track meet at uh, our, our school's annual field day. And I came away with a chest full of ribbons uh, for the sprinting and jumping events. And after that, I was strictly in love with, with running and jumping and track and field. And it's lasted today. So between watching Bill Carruthers win the 800 or the silver in the 800 to that track meet in the spring or that, you know, day at, at school, had you been training yourself? No, I, I wasn't training yet. I was reading up on it. And don't forget, it was winter. 
And uh, I really didn't know anything about training or anything like that. But I, I love the stories in the Olympics, reading about Emil Zadopik and Pavel Nurmi. And uh, it, it just got me hooked. And I was reading books. I, I, didn't, I didn't really know what I was going to be a, a distance runner. I was, doing, I was interested in jumping and yeah. hurdling and, and pretty much everything. Yeah. But mm-hmm. my first uh, tr- time on the track was the following uh, spring at our annual field day. And uh, it was very successful for me. And interestingly enough, that summer, I decided when, it's when I first started training. I actually got a book from the library and I read up on training and it had sections on uh, sprinting, middle distance and long distance running. So being a, a, a very enthusiastic uh, 13-year-old, by that time I was 14 years old, I decided I would, I would do all three training programs. So I was training <laughs> as a sprinter, a middle distance runner, a distance runner. And uh, remember I mentioned I was a very durable youth? Well, I managed, I managed to survive that summer on my make-do make training program, having no clue what I was doing. And then that fall, I ran cross-country for the school. So did that work for you? <laughs> <laughs> I well, you can't say it didn't work. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I really was in shape. I really was in shape by the end of the school. But like, I was finishing like twentieth place in the cross country. Like, I wasn't, as I said, and we'll go on later. I wasn't naturally gifted, mm-hmm. but I sure had a lot of enthusiasm and passion. And that was my introduction to training for track and field. Trying to kill myself covering all the events. <laughs> Yeah, but it it paid off, right? Because you did well in all the events. You got that early exposure to all the different uh, skills that the the different events brought to you. So you went on, uh, I think I read that you uh, went on to run for the U of M, right? And you went to University of Manitoba and you were on their cross country and track team. And, And again, you said you're not gifted, like you don't have this natural talent or ability you're you're very average that's how you say it but I mean you you had been a student of the sport up until that time yeah so can you expand maybe a little bit on that right so uh after my grade eight I I I continued to do running off and on and competing at field days now but I was never doing really regular training I didn't belong to a track and field club I didn't have a coach or anything like that um so the summer that I was a, the fall, the summer before the fall that I was going to enter my, my freshman year at the University of Manitoba, I was doing some running again. I sort of got the running bug again, and I was training myself and doing a bit of running. And one day uh, at the university in October, I'm reading the school newspaper, and there's a little article on there about uh, there's going to be an intramural track meet one day next week after classes, and there's going to be a two-mile event in it. So I said, wow, here's a chance for me to uh, test myself. I've been training all summer. Let's see what I can do in a two-mile. So I went out that, that Wednesday evening, and I ran in the two-mile race. And I wasn't that good. The, the better runners from the university cross-country team would, would have lapped me. But anyways, I was sort of happy with my, my performance. I'd never run a two-mile before. And I was after the race, I'm sitting on the infield taking my spikes off. And I noticed this tall, uh, distinguished-looking gentleman walking down the steps of the stadium. And he disappears behind the stadium grandstand. And uh, a minute later, he pops out at the far end of the track and he's walking directly towards me. And I said, so what's this about? So he walks up to me and says, hi, I'm Jim Daly, coach of the Bison cross-country team. You look pretty good out there. I'd like to invite you to join the cross-country team. And I knew who Jim Daly was uh, from the Pan Am Games. And I, and I knew he was the coach of the uh, track and field and cross-country team, but I didn't know what he looked like. So when he said that to me, I think I said something like, well, 
I'm not really very good. And he said, no, you look like you look pretty good out there. I think you've got potential. In the meantime, I'm thinking to myself, wow, Jim Daly wants me mm-hmm. on his cross country team. <laughs> so I joined the cross country team and I, I truly, I wasn't very good because I really wasn't doing enough training. And I was jumping in there with some really elite athletes who knew exactly what they were doing. So for the next three years, I ran some indoor track and cross country for the Bisons. And I never made the A team in cross country as I was on the B team. But what did happen was that I was able to associate with some really good runners. And I saw how they trained. I saw how they focused. I saw, you know, how they handled themselves in races. And they became my role models. So that lesson stuck with me for the rest of my life. I saw what it takes to be a really elite runner. Right. Well, this happens in a lot of different sports where you get this tribe of people or this group of people that exist at at a moment in time and they're all in the same place and like starts to breed like. And, you know, just to excel within your own team, you have to push yourself that much harder. Uh, And then you can show up at events against other teams and, and you're that much better. And, you know, you've you've talked a bit about the running boom and, and this group of people that you ran with in university. Um, tell us a bit more about maybe how that has carried on over the decades and how being part of that crew has affected running even within Manitoba over the years. Well, uh, for me and, and probably for other people as well, one thing seems to lead to another and you never know what that other is going to be, right? Yeah. So it's really so much of it is based on chance. Something happens that leads to something else. And that's the way it was for me. Uh, That was my first introduction to running. But interestingly, after university, I didn't run for a period of about eight years. Although I did maintain my interest in running and I was following. I was a fan of track and field and that. I was career building and doing other things in life. And as most university students, they don't continue running after university. But something else happened. The running boom. So in the late 70s, there was a lot of interest. And uh, the first Manitoba Marathon was held in uh, Manitoba. And more and more runners uh, you could see in the street. When I was running in my late teens there in university, you didn't see runners on the street. You didn't see runners in the park. It was strictly strictly elite runners. It was track and field athletes, cross-country runners in school. But there were no casual joggers. You know, there were no recreational runners. By the late 70s, that all changed. So I got really hyped up again. Uh, in in the early 80s to start running again so uh, that that's another part of the story but um, I don't had the running boom not come along would anything else have come along eh? well that's what I found so interesting like you you had this pre-running boom experience then you took a little bit of a hiatus and then when you came back it was post-running boom if I've got the timeline correct right and yeah what were the the main things that you noticed what were the major differences uh pre and post huge differences the technology uh the shoes the clothing in the early 70s we had like three brands of shoes you could buy uh, adidas and puma and they were generally general purpose shoes they weren't no specialty shoes and then there was a very obscure brand called tiger from japan which you could only get through mail order from some guy who was selling them from his basement in Vancouver. And the guys at the University of Manitoba were wearing these Tiger shoes. So uh, I had to, of course, get a, get a pair. And the Tiger shoes were actually the predecessor of the company, Nike. Nike, yeah. Uh, the, yeah, the, the people from Nike went on to uh, 
they actually produced some of the Tiger shoes and then Nike and Tiger had a fallout. So uh, Nike went off on its own. At that time, it was called Blue Ribbon Sports. Buck Knight went and started his own company. And uh, since Tiger and him were having a bit of a war, he decided to make his own shoes, which became the Nike brand. And they changed everything. Everything changed after Nike came on the scene. Well, you just summarized the book Shoe Dog right there. Have you read it? I've read it several times. Um, it's a fabulous read and uh, incredible how they even survived, right? They, they should have gone under several times, but they survived because it was the running group and there was a market. Yeah, <laughs> They were came along right at the right time. Eh? Yeah. They came right along at the right time. And uh, there was a huge explosion of, of various brands and running clothes. I used to say running clothes went from no tech to high tech in a very short period of time. So you ditched the cotton shorts and shirts? Yeah, they, they were no longer in vogue. Yeah. And the cotton, uh, you could buy Gore-Tex was there. And you, could buy, you could literally buy anything at that time. It went from almost nothing in 1975 to an unlimited amount of stuff in 1985. It's amazing how fast things change. And it was because there was a market and there was mm-hmm. companies that were prepared to fill the market. Eh? Yeah. Well, you know, it's almost parallels. When I read Shoe Dog, it reminded me I'd, of the whole Steve Jobs story too, how Apple and Microsoft and Hewlett Packard were all kind of stealing from each other and competing against each other and riding that wave of that boom. And then here was Nike as well. You know, that period in history, there was so much innovation and so much change. So you mentioned technology. What were people doing for watches back in the 80s? Were they even using them? When I started, a stopwatch was a big thing you held on your hand and pushed down, right? There was no stopwatch on your wrist. But then Timex got in and there was a whole bunch of brands for wrist stopwatches. So you could, there was probably a dozen brands of those. There was probably a dozen brands of just about everything. It proliferated at an amazing rate. But it's not like today where you had GPS and everything else and hot monitors and stuff like that. But, but at least you didn't have to carry around the big clunky stopwatch in your hand anymore. You, yeah. you had it on your wrist, you know. Right. So now on the timeline where you're in your 30s, right? So you take up running again, kind of get in, back into it in your 30s and, and all throughout the 80s, right? And then you took up marathoning as well, didn't you? And in 1991, at the age of 40, you placed eighth in the Manitoba Marathon. Can you tell us yeah, a little bit? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, well... The way I got interested in the in the marathon in, in the early 80s was because a friend of mine from a county school was an avid marathon runner, and he kept prodding me to get out there and run again after he heard that I was running in university. So I just developed this very strong desire to complete a marathon because I considered it to be a big hole in my running resume. So I trained for the 1983 Manitoba Marathon, and I ran it in three hours and five minutes, and I was totally ecstatic nice. about that. Yes. So after that, I joined a running club. It was originally the Fidipides Running Club, and then it became Prairie Sky Roadrunners. I joined them. Well, now there was a whole group of people. And now it was not only just a training thing, it was a whole social thing. So it added a whole other dimension to running because now you're running with people who have a passion that you have. You're socializing with you. You're doing training groups with them and things like that. We would meet for long runs on Sunday morning. We would meet our regular track session would be on Tuesday and with a coach. We'd meet on Thursday for another workout. So there was a huge dimension here that we didn't have in the 70s training with because there were lots of people running. And now it was a social activity as well as a physical competitive activity. Yeah. Yeah. So you did that 
marathon, the Manitoba Marathon in 1983, but then did you do it every year until 1991? No, I didn't do it every year. I did a lot of uh, half marathon, the half marathon, okay. which was in the in the mix by then, and the and the relays. I only I only did the Manitoba Marathon twice. The second one was in the 1992 when I was eighth, but I was I was running more half. You can't really run a lot of marathons, maybe two a year. And I was running like Ottawa Marathon, Toronto Marathon, San Francisco Marathon, Chicago Marathon. Uh, so I would usually run the Manitoba Half Marathon in the spring and do a full marathon in the fall. And a lot of road races. We had a lot of road races in between. And training for a marathon and racing a marathon, you can't really do road races every week because you got to be doing that 20-mile long run every yeah. weekend. Right. Yeah. Right. So uh, I was only really doing one marathon a year after that. Well, that's what I was going to ask because the marathon would seem almost like out of your wheelhouse, right? Because at, at U of M, you were middle distance, yeah. right? You were doing the, the 800, the 1500, the 3000, then maybe some cross country, but a marathon must have felt like a marathon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I can tell you're not my age. Back in my university days, we didn't have metric. We ran the 880 yards, right. the mile, yes. the two mile, the yes. three mile. Yes. Metric didn't come along till later. So right. uh, I had to I had to convert to metric when I became a road runner. And we didn't have 10K <laughs> road races back in the early 70s. Yeah. You had a your race your, you had a race might have been four miles, but it was measured by the uh, race the race organizer's car speedometer. You know. Yeah. <laughs> it was very informal. So you, you never really had a, you didn't have what they call the, uh, what do they call it now? Um, certified courses. Certified, <laughs> we didn't have certified courses then. You just had whatever the race director wanted to make the course. It was an ish, um, was an ish. kind of yeah, distance. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so um, after, you know, the year that was 1991 and you placed eighth in the Manitoba Marathon, a few years later, um, if I understand correctly, you decided to retire from running. So right. what happened? How come? That was about, you now. I had about 12 years of running under my belt there. I felt I had accomplished about everything that I could do in running. I had uh, reached my goals, eighth in the Manitoba Marathon other times. And um, I had developed a, a painful hip injury that made training and competition rather unpleasant to do. And I, there was other things in life, you know, life goes on. And there was other things in life that I was getting interested in. And I thought, you know, Maybe this is now the time to step aside and go on to other things in life. Hmm. So I initially considered myself retired, and I didn't expect to be coming back into running again. And boy, was I wrong. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that sport just doesn't let you go, does it? <laughs> well, serendipity again. Serendipity again. So in your 50s, you kind of rekindled that that love or that passion for, for the sport and uh, started yeah. to pursue some middle distance track goals again, right? Yeah. And uh, right. But at that time, so how did you go about that? Like, how did you decide to sort of get back on the track? And what were the steps that you took to sort of get you there? Okay, so, so this is another story continuing on my saga. Have you ever heard this expression from Yogi Berra, it ain't over till it's over? Oh, yeah. It ain't over till it's over, and it wasn't over for me. Um, as it turned out, in 2003, fate intervened once again in my running life, and I was given what I call a very powerful revelation about the role and importance of running in my life. My passion for running was reignited, and from there I went on to some unimaginable accomplishments in uh, my running career. In 2005, there was another amazing 
occurrence of serendipity. I was a road racer then, training for 10Ks and half marathons. And when I heard about the World Masters Games coming to Edmonton in 2005, I set my sights on training for them. Now, I would be 54 at these games, the highest age in an age group. And I knew I, I wouldn't be really competing for the medals because of my disadvantaged age factor. So I was going for fun and with no expectations. Little did I know that uh, fate was going to intervene once again. I was a roadrunner at the time, and I went to compete in the 10K and a half marathon road distances. But since the, since the games are over a one-week period and the road races were on consecutive weekends, I decided to enter the 5,000-meter track race and the 8K cross-country race. And my best placing in four was a fourth place finish in the 10K. But a most remarkable revelation occurred to me during the games. I was able to run competitively with the runners from around the world that were in the 55 to 59 age category. And I was going to be 55 in less than a year. So that got me thinking, man, here I am. These guys are, 50, these guys are some of the best guys in the world, and I'm right up there with them. So when I got home from the, after the games, I decided to look up the Canadian Masters records on the Canadian Masters website and see what they were for the 55 to 59 age category. And I looked at the 1500. No, I no chance I could ever run that fast. I looked at the 3000. Well, that one sort of looks possible. I looked at the 5000. That one kind of looks possible too. So I started thinking, you know, I should start training for track events and see if I could do these records next year. So I thought, how am I going to do this? I can't keep training. I can't be training for the 10,000 and a half marathon. I can't keep training with the people I'm training with because they're not training for those shorter track events. So I looked around and I decided, you know, I've got to have two things. I've got to have a coach and I've got to have a training group. Mm -hmm. So what was available at Winnipeg? Well, there wasn't a lot available in Winnipeg at all. There was a club called the Winnipeg Optimist, which was mainly made up of junior high and senior high school students. There was the Bison track and field team, which was the University of Manitoba athletes. And there was a, a small group of elite athletes training with Chris McCubbins, who was a, a former Canadian Olympian in the 10,000 meters. Well, that wasn't going to work for me because I wasn't an elite athlete. So I was left with the Bison track and field training with the university students. So I asked Claude Rube, who I knew from road races, could I join his uh, club and could he coach me? And he said, sure, come on along. So in November of uh, 2005, I started training with the University of Manitoba track team, 18 to 22-year-olds. Did it bring you right back? <laughs> it was totally different because when I was there, nobody had tattoos or body piercings or earrings. <laughs> I was a little, I was little, uh, little, little out of place, but they, they took me on, and they were a great group of guys to train with. They gave me a nickname, D-Machine. And I trained with those guys for, for six years. Wow. And uh, it was the best six years of my life, I think. It was just so much fun being with those young people. It's really interesting because you look around, where are the people? What sort of tribe can I insert myself into to get myself ready for this? Oh, there are none. None of people my age. So I'm just going to like, I think it can't be glossed over that you went out and, and actively sought out the group that you knew would pull you along to your best. Is that, would yes. that be fair to uh -huh. say? That would be exactly, exactly what it was. Yeah. Was there anything in you that was uh, like, did you have a little like negative voice at all? Like, Ooh, who am I to go train with the, the university students? Or were you like, no, I belong here. Like I belong here. Just, I was only here like 30 years ago. 
<laughs> no, I, I didn't have any trepidations about going there. I, I didn't know what to expect. And, and, and Claude says to me, well, you know, you might, be, you might feel a little bit strange because these guys are a lot younger than you. Um, but from the first workout on, I just fit right in and there was, no, there was nothing there that was, uh, yeah, it just fit right in. My, in fact, my wife would say, are you going to train with your grandchildren? <laughs> um, but, um, I love but it. It was amazing. They just accepted me and I just That's fit awesome. right in and you wouldn't have known that I was, you know, old enough to be their fathers or grandfathers. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It was amazing. So. You know, you talk about all these moments of fate and serendipity that have come across your path, but I think it also can't be glossed over that you followed up on those moments with action. And what happened after those moments wasn't by accident. It was very intentional. You you yeah. sought out a coach. You First of all, if you recognize the opportunity that was being put before you, so many people, you know, were just too busy to even notice all these opportunities. And then second, you, you really dove right into it and actioned and look what's happened. Like, yeah. And then yeah. there's more. There's more to the I story. I was just going <laughs> to say, I know there's more to the story. So um, yeah. keep moving on. What's next? Okay. So that winter, so that, all that winter, I trained indoors with the University of Manitoba track team and I started to run some 1500s and 3000s indoors and um, had my sights set on uh, breaking some Canadian records when I turned uh, 55. So May 30th, 2006, I turned. 55. May 31st, 2006, I break the 3,000 meter record. <laughs> on the first day that or, you're 55. On the first day that I'm 55. Yeah, wow. I broke the first record because that was the thing. And uh, so I went on from there. Now, here's another uh, interesting um, serendipitous event. A couple of weeks later, there was going to be a 5,000 meter event in an evening track meet in Winnipeg. And of course, I entered and I thought, well, Okay, so here's my chance to break the 5,000-meter record. So I'm anxiously waiting for the day to come. That afternoon, late in the afternoon, I get a phone call from the executive director of the Athletics Manitoba. You're the only entry in the 5,000 meters, <laughs> so we're not going to be able to hold it. Oh. Will you switch your event to the 1,500 meters? And I'm going, oh, my. oh, my God, this is the best chance I had. It's not going to be held. Okay, I'll run the 1500 as a workout. So I go there to the track and field meet. I run the 1500 meters that, that, that evening. I'm five seconds off the Canadian record. Wow. I'm going five seconds and I'm not, although that's a lot for 1500, but I wasn't even trying for five seconds. Right. Well, maybe the 1500 meters is possible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I thought, how am I going to do this? It's, I got two weeks to go to the provincial championships. How am I going to do this? So I'm thinking about what has to happen. And then I realized, you know, every variable involved in a race would have to line up in my favor for me to do it. But I could do it. So comes race day, that, that Saturday morning, I'm really nervous. Go to the track, start my warm up, and all of a sudden, a thunderstorm blows into Winnipeg, a big thunderstorm. So they announced they're suspending the meet for a, for a while, maybe an hour, to see if the thunderstorm will blow over. So it's pouring rain. It's thundering. The wind is howling. The lightning strikes. But fortunately, in about 20 minutes, the thunderstorm did blow over. Welcome to Winnipeg. Yeah. So they started the track meet over again. So 
I start my warm up all over again. And um, by the time the senior man's 1500 meters is ready to go, the track is dried up. The wind has died down to nothing, which is extremely rare in Winnipeg. The air is cool and crisp, and we start the 1500 meters under near perfect conditions. Mm. So it was on. It was on. So I ran the first lap right on the pace I needed to be on. I'm in the second lap. I'm thinking to myself, now don't go too fast. Don't waste too much energy here because it's a really hard third lap. You got to save something for the third lap. I finished the second lap. I'm now four seconds off the record pace. I went, oh no, I think I just blew it. Four seconds with a lap and three quarters to go. That's a lot to gain. But I didn't panic. I just gradually increased my pace. And when I got to three laps, I was gained back a second. So I had 300 meters to go and I was three seconds down. Oh my gosh. So I just sprinted and gave it everything I had. And a miracle occurred. I never slowed down all the way to the tape. I've never sprinted like that from that far out all the way to the tape. Anyways, when I finished the race, I knew I've got to be just under or just over the record. And so I'm waiting anxious, waiting anxious when the time's coming. The time's come up. I'm half a second under the record. <gasps> oh, my goodness. Now the record holder for the 3,000 and the 1,500. Oh my God. But wait, there's more. <laughs> I, I did not think I was a 1,500-meter runner. All of a sudden, I realize the 1,500 is your thing. might be my best event. Yeah. So that started a whole other chain of thinking. <laughs> So that, so what it looked like I was going to lose the 5,000 meter record, I gained the 1,500 meter record. And that changed my thinking going forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So there was another serendipitous event. I might have got the 5,000 meter record, but I wouldn't have got the 1,500 meter record probably because I wouldn't have run it yeah. at the provincial championships. And I probably wouldn't have run it after that either. So there's more to the story to come. But now, <laughs> I'm a 1,500-meter runner by serendipity. Like your your identity, like so often as runners, we do put ourselves in a box. Like I'm an ultra runner, I'm a track runner, I'm a marathoner, whatever it is, right? Um, but you're, you must have been all over the map, like ping-ponging, like who am I as a runner? <laughs> like am I 1,500? Am I a marathon? Like you'd kind of dabble all of them, right? I, I'm learning. I'm learning my identity. I'm, yeah. I knew I wasn't a marathon runner, but I didn't think it was a 1500 meter runner either. Right. But I was. I was proven wrong on that one. So now I got the 1500 meters uh, record, and um, there's a whole new field open up there for me. I also broke the 3000 meter record a second time. I took it down to 948 after that. So I broke the 3000 meter record twice. I broke the 1500 meter record. And I never had another really chance to break the 5,000 meter record. So the track season's over. Now I'm thinking, so now I'm thinking, okay, so where do you go from here? You're already the Canadian record holder, but there must be more. So I, I look up the World Masters Track and Field Championships. And wouldn't you know the stars are lining up there for me as well? Because in 2011, the year that I turned 60, there's going to be a World Masters Track and Field Championship someplace. So that got me thinking about going to the World Masters Track and Field Championships five years from then. I would have five years to train, and I would hit it right at the peak 
And it's a huge advantage being in the first age of a, a five-year age group. Right. So I thought, here is your opportunity of a lifetime. Don't let it slip away. How are you going to approach it? And that's when I came up with my five-year plan, gradually came up with a five-year plan, as to how I was going to train and prepare for that World Masters Championship. Now, you guys are runners and you know this. It's not enough to prepare yourself physically. You have to prepare yourself mentally as well at the top level. Yes. Racing is more mental than physical. 110%. Yeah. Yep. So so I'm looking, how do I prepare myself mentally? I'm, I'm in a good track. I've got a good coach. I've got a good training group. I'm training well. I'm staying healthy. Everything's working for me there. But there's one other big factor that has to be dealt with because the world championships, that's a pretty big stage to perform on. And you just don't go there and say, here I am. You got to prepare for that. So what I started to do was I started to go to the Canadian Masters Trend Track and Field Championships. I went to the uh, U.S. Masters Championships. I went to the North American, Central American, Caribbean Championships. I went to the World Masters Indoor in Kelowna. I went to these these uh, championships specifically to get to understand how to prepare yourself at a championship. And when you're when you're at a championship event, you're in a hotel, you got you're eating restaurant food. There's all kinds of things going on. You have to be able to manage yourself at those events. You're not going for a vacation. You're not going to do sightseeing. You're not going to socialize. You're going there for a specific purpose. And you have to be able to manage every hour of your time there to maximize and be ready for your race. So that's how I prepared myself mentally by rehearsing what I needed to do before I got to the big stage by doing it on little, smaller stages. Mm -hmm. And I think um, you and I spoke and you were saying that, yeah, you knew you had this five years, right? So so how am I going to use this five years? But also factoring into that was, okay, I'm going to slow down by this much. Like it's very well known, right? The strength and the speed and all of that declines in a kind of a certain percentage uh, per year. So you're like, I have to be this fast now so that by the time I'm five years older, is that, can you walk us through kind of your thought process? I'm going to take you through the mathematics. Yes. Please do. You're a good accountant, right? <laughs> Preparing for the world championships. This is a math lesson. Okay. 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 Uh, so one of the first things I did when I decided I was going to go to the world masters is I looked up the, the world masters championships from previous years. And I, you know, wrote down what the, the, the medal winning times were for the 800 meters, the 1500 meters, the 5,000, the 10,000, to see what kind of times I would have to be able to run in 2011 to be in the medals. So I knew what times were needed and I wasn't doing those times. But what what I also did was I looked at the decline in performance for each five-year age group from 50 to 54 to 55 to 59 to 60 to 64 to see how much performance decline was taking place at the elite master's level. And I found out it was about 5% per five-year age groups. That would be 1% per year. So I I knew I would have to decrease less than 5% per five years or 1% per year to get in the times I would need to get a medal in 2011. I could not not decline at the average declining rate. I would have to... I would have to decline less. And to give you an example, in 2006, my Canadian 1500 record was 
32. In 2011, my Canadian record was 437. That's a 1.7% decline in five years. Five years. Wow. And my 800-meter time was even, decline was even less than that. Wow. So part of the accomplishment was through training, you you have to de- you have to age slower yeah, than everyone than else. Your <laughs> yes. yes. So you can catch up to them. What did you do? Did were you putting a, a ton of muscle on that one hundred and twenty pound frame, or what did you no, do? No muscle, Caroline. Weight counts. You don't want muscle. Weight, you want strong muscles, but not heavy muscles. But you can be in the weight room getting neuromuscular yeah. gains without getting weight gains. Yeah. Yeah, we're going to get into that a little bit later, how important that is in master's training. And the other thing I did is I calculated every year what time I would have to run in the 1500 meters. I needed to run 439 or better in 2011. So what times did I need to run in 2008, 2009, 2010, etc., to be on target to run 439 in 2011? And in 2010, I calculated I needed to run a 437 for 1500 meters. Well, I ran 437.01. <laughs> so a year ahead of time, I knew I was right on schedule. Yeah. yeah. I knew I was I was aging less than my competitors <laughs> on average. And I was right on target. And then that winter in 2010, I ran, 2011, I ran a, a 438 indoors. And then at the provincial championships, I set a Canadian record 437 outdoors. Oh so when I went to the championships, I knew I was right on target for what I needed to be. To, to, to be in the medals. Yes. Doesn't mean you're going to get a medal. You still have to produce your best performance on that big stage. But my training plan had worked perfectly. And what I want to emphasize here, and I have some notes on this, it's your training. And we haven't really emphasized training. We talked about chance. We talked about mental. But the bottom line is, it's your training that makes you special. Even if you're a gifted runner. And I'd have to admit, at that time, I was training harder and better than most of the other competitors in my age group in the world. So it, in final analysis, it was the training that I was doing, yeah. plus everything yeah. else. Yeah. Wow. Like I said, it doesn't happen by accident. It's, it's intention. Yeah. Yeah. And... Um, I, I hesitate to ask a question now because you have such an amazing story, but let's just take a little commercial break to to circle back a little bit to, you know, you mentioned a few points that you had some pre-race nerves and, you know, then this thunderstorm came and then you shook it out and went and ran an awesome race. I'm wondering if as over the decades, you know, you've raced in, in your 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. Does that pre-race nerve feeling get any better? Have you yeah. gotten better at calming yourself and not getting worked up before a race? Yeah, I don't get worked up before a race anymore. I probably never did, but I've got over 200 road races and over 100 yeah. track races. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I've raced on the highest stages, the biggest stages. So I'm really not, I would say I'm not nervous before a race but I'm on edge because you, there is an edge. You do want to be a little bit I was bit just going to say, sometimes a little bit of that adrenaline yeah, and that, yeah. that you know, stress response can be advantageous to a person, a, right? Yeah, you have to be yeah. a little bit psyched up, but not yeah. over the top. You can't be so nervous that you can't perform, but you, it helps. It's just getting prepared for tonight, there is an edge there. you got to have mm-hmm. that edge. you got to be yeah. ready. Yeah. And you got to know that you're ready, uh, but your, your confidence comes from your preparation and your training. So. Yeah. 
if yeah. you've got those yeah. if you've got those factors working for you it's pretty easy to be race calm when the gun goes off yeah yeah i always say that the line between fear and excitement is very small so like those race nerves you can make it mean like oh no i'm so nervous like what's wrong or you could make it mean like oh this is my body just sort of getting ready for a peak performance like it's doing exactly what it needs to do and it's like the story you tell yourself about the nerves is almost as important as anything else would you agree with that absolutely yeah you have to you have to have that i call it an edge yeah. Uh, factor. If you don't have, I know if I don't have it, I know I'm not going to have a good race. Right. Yeah. Uh, right. But I'm not, I'm not psyched. Some people say you have to be psyched up. It's like psyching yourself up, but not over psyching. But there is, there is an emotional factor as well as the physical factor and the mental factor. Emotion does come into play in the equation. Right? Yeah. Yeah. But as you mentioned, you have to be in control of every, uh, that's every it. element of it. Right. It's controlled. It's controlled yeah. emotion. Yeah. Controlled emotion. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. We actually, I don't think we heard the results of the race. Let's hear the story of that world championship. Oh, you want to hear this? Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You wouldn't believe this one. <laughs> Anyways. Okay. So I'm in the 1500 meter race. I've already, I've already won the silver a bronze medal in the 800 meter race. Okay. Ran, I ran the 10th fastest time in recorded masters history in my age group for that one. I wasn't expecting to get a bronze medal, but I got the bronze medal there. I ran a fabulous race. The guy in front of me was the world record holder in the event. And um, that was a bonus. So now I'm getting, and, and to, to do that race, you have to run three races. You have to run a, you have to run a heat to get into the semifinal. You have to run a semifinal to get into the final. And then you have to run the final. And uh, everything worked out and uh, got, this, got the bronze medal, got a bonus there. Now my main event is coming up to 1,500 meters. Yeah, I run one heat. I easily qualify for the final. The final comes up. Uh, and I'm, I'm in there against, um, again, the world record holder. So the race goes off. And I, my plan was to not be in any worse than fourth place. So I've already, I've already uh, done a, an analysis of the field. I know who the, the, the medal contenders are. I know who to watch out for. I have my race plan in place. And uh, I get to 300 meters, and there's a British guy in front of me, and I know he's not a medal contender. So I'm in second place. I'm not too concerned about this. We get into the, the first straight, the first finishing straight, and he starts to slow down. So I say, well, I'm not going to let the race slow down. I'm in really good shape. So I had to take over the lead. I had to take over the lead at the, at the uh, 300 meter mark. So I'm in the, so I lead for the next two and a half laps. Uh, and I'm on pace. I know I'm on pace for a sub uh, 440 race. Anyways, with 300 meters to go, 300 meters to go, the world record holder blasts by me. And I'm saying, 300 meters, I can't go with that from this far out. So I let him go. Then two other guys, a British guy and a Colombian, they go by me. And I know they're both medal contenders. So I'm running down the back straight. I get to 200 meters from the finish. And I think to myself, I'm in fourth place. And I'm running as hard as I can go. And I'm not gaining on them. I'm not going to get a medal. So anyways, I relax around the turn and I hit the finishing straight and I swing out into lane four and I start sprinting as hard as I can go. And these guys are about five, the, the, two, the second and third place runner are about five meters in front of me. I'm gradually, ever so slowly, creeping up, getting closer, getting closer, almost to the finish. It's 15 meters from the finish. I'm still in fourth place. 
but they both start to slow down dramatically. And I catch them and I pass the second place runner with like two steps to go to the finish. And I dip into the finish and I win the silver medal. Oh my goodness. I'm like sweating. (laughs) How's it going to end? (laughs) Okay. How do you You are such a good storyteller. Oh my word. How does that happen? You know? So now I'm now I'm silver medal. I'm the silver number ranked number two in the world. I, I again break the Canadian record, and um, I've got the silver medal. I've achieved my my goal. I've achieved my life goal. The, the, the world record holder finishes first, and I wasn't expecting to beat him, but second to the best runner ever in our age category is not a bad place to be. Yes, and and I have yeah. to ask, oh, like yeah. coming full circle to your beginning story, did it give you any flashbacks to your your boyhood dream of watching the Olympics? There it was. <laughs> there I was. It was my goal to win a medal in the in a world championship for Canada. And, and there, there I was. Started in 1964. I got to two medals and in a, in a world championship for Canada. It only, and it only took from 1964 to 2011 to do yes. it, you know, so that's not bad. Eh? Well, and and we've talked about this, like sometimes things don't occur on the timeline that we would want, right? And sometimes a seed gets planted yeah. and, it, and it takes decades to mature. So talk to us mm-hmm. about that, because it sounds very incredibly calculated, everything that you did. Once you got that passion, right, for the sport, uh, yeah. you set your sights on something, you made a plan. And you worked and you kept showing up and showing up. And anyone can do that, right? Regardless of your natural talent. Anyone can do that, yeah. I will take this a step further. The Tokyo Olympics are happening again this year. So what would you say to the 13-year-olds sitting and watching that now? Well, I, w- I would tell them to watch the 5,000-meter race. 5,000 meters, because we've got two incredible athletes in there, Mohammed Ahmed and Justin Knight. And, and we have a very good chance of uh, winning a medal in the 5,000 meters and in the hundred and, and in the hundred meters and 200 meters as well. So we've got yeah. some really good athletes going in there. So uh, I'm, I'll be watching every minute of track and field. And I have to say the women's 5,000 is going to be pretty awesome as well. We've well, got we've some got, good. In the 1500s, we've got a very good runner in the women's 1500 meters. Gabriella W. Yeah, Stafford. Gabriella, yep. Yeah, Stafford, yeah. Yep. So uh, We've got medal contenders, so we're going to come away, I think, with some medals from this screens. But this, I think, might be the deepest fields ever in some of the middle distance events, both men Absolutely. and women. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Kim and I both have a 13. Well, Kim's your 14. Um, yeah. Lucas 14. is 14 now, but I have a 13 year old and I would be thrilled if he watched the Olympics with uh, <laughs> with those dreams this summer. So, <laughs> yeah, I might just have to get cable just to watch the Olympics. <laughs> CBC and NBC will be on CBC and NBC. Mm. And uh, yeah. uh, back when I was watching it, of course, we didn't have uh, computer games or Twitter or any of those other things. So we mm-hmm. only had television back then. And uh, uh, when we weren't watching television, we were outside running around, you know, not like today. So there's an old adage, Dennis, that life is much more about the journey than the destination. Have you found this to be true in running as well? You know, I sure have. And uh, you could almost say that I'm the poster boy for that adage because uh, it's all about the journey and everyone's journey is unique. Your journey is going to be full of unexpected twists and turns and your final destination, you may not know where it is until you get there, but enjoy the journey. My running journey could never have been foreseen or scripted. It was all about loving what I was doing and letting the forces of fate guide the trip. 
Uh, what I cherish now today is, is not the medals or the records or the awards or the recognition I receive. What I cherish the most is the memories I have, the joys I experienced, and the many, many great people that I met along the way, the challenges I faced and overcame, and more than anything, knowing I did it my way against the odds. But I wouldn't trade that journey for anything, you know. I would take the journey over the medal any day. A life well lived. Okay, so Dennis, the reason I even know you in the first place is because you and I are both on the master's committee for uh, that was put together by Athletics Manitoba. So we're sort of trying to understand this, what the blocks are to getting more people involved in, uh, in competing as a, as a master's athlete. So what message do you have for the, quote, average runner who may be interested in master's track but hasn't taken any action yet? Sure. I gave a lot of thought to this question because I really wanted to get, the, get, get a good answer for the listeners. So I actually wrote something out, and it goes like this. I would tell them to approach it as a new and exciting journey in their wellness lifestyle. A journey begins with the first step, and the first step is often the hardest one to take. When you embark on a new journey in your life, the blessing and experience will be unique to you and will enrich your life. I would tell them it doesn't matter how many medals you win or don't win, what times you run, or anything else that gets recorded. It's what doesn't get recorded that you will remember and cherish, those special memories and experiences from your personal journey. Mostly you will remember the people who touched your life and you theirs, and the new friends you made, and the great times you shared with them. This is what Masters Athletics is all about participating for the sheer joy of it. So don't be afraid to take that first difficult step. Your future harvest will be well worth the initial effort. Speechless. Yep. Very, very, very well said. We're a friendly bunch, Masters athletes, aren't we? And you'll make some of the best friends in all your life. That's right. So if you're listening to this and you have even an inkling that you want to step on the track and give it a try, um, I don't know uh, what better testimonial you can get than this interview. So, yeah. What do you have your sights set on now? Turning 70 and, and, and being in a new master's age group is very exciting for me. I have a new list of uh, racing goals and it all tops off with the uh, hosting of the 2023, 2023 World Masters Indoor Track and Field Championships in Edmonton in March. Down the road. <laughs> yeah, so my goal there is to compete in an all-surfaces racing Grand Prix. That's a 3,000-meter track race. A ten thousand meter road race and an eight k cross country race. Does it get any better than that? Yeah, you got your training plan all together. How many months to go? <laughs> well, I'm I'm just getting over an injury right now. Oh, okay. The first major injury I've had in my life. It's a hamstring issue, and it's taken a year of for me to 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 work mm -hmm. through it and do physiotherapy and strengthening exercises and all of that. And the reason I got that injury in 2018, Carolyn is because I wasn't doing what you tell people to do. Do strengthening <laughs> exercises. You can't just be running. Preach it. <laughs> in a, in a mas as a master, you, you, you're getting older. And, old, and, yeah. and getting older does terrible things to your body. So you got to compensate for your loss of strength, your loss of flexibility, your declining yeah. cardiac output. 
you just can't be running as a master. You gotta do strengthening exercises all over your body to prevent injuries. And I didn't do it. Amen. I paid the price. Yeah, yeah. But are you on the mend? Do you feel like you're coming out of this injury? Oh, no. no, no. I've just started doing speed work again in the last month. Awesome. I'm doing two-hour awesome. runs again. I'm running pain-free thanks to physiotherapy. I was running with a lot of – I was running, but running with a lot of pain. Yeah. Uh, and I didn't go to physiotherapy until it didn't, it didn't uh, improve for about six months. So oh, this is not yeah. improving. I better go see a physiotherapist. I went to a running specialist physiotherapist. And she worked on me for like three months with a lot of acupuncture and a lot of strengthening exercises and stuff like that. And I'm back to uh, doing speed work again. And oh, uh, hopefully uh, with all the strengthening exercises that you recommend, <laughs> uh, I'll stay healthy and injury-free and get to the 2023 uh, World Masters Indoor. Well, I hope to be there with you. <laughs> I was oh, wow. very excited to hear that announced. So yeah, it gives us a long-term goal. So anyone listening, like you've got time, you've got a couple of years to yeah. prepare and that's enough time, right, Dennis? That's enough time. Well, there's not enough time if you're starting from scratch, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but it's enough time if you're, uh, if you're already a runner and want to focus, yeah. um, hopefully we're giving you some tips as to how to do it. And uh what I'm saying is it's you have to prepare mentally and physically uh, for the events if you want to uh, be at the highest. But it's a participation event. It doesn't matter whether you win a medal or not. If you're going to enjoy yourself, whether you win a medal or not, it's not going to it's going to be the same enjoyment. The enjoyment doesn't change. Yeah. We don't want people to train and show up and have nobody to race against. Right, yeah. Carolyn? Yeah. <laughs> Go for the fun. Fun first. It's fun first. Fun. Yeah. It's yes. always yeah. about the fun. Yes. And the people. And you will meet people from all over the world. Did I mention that? You will meet people from all over the world who are exactly like you. It's amazing how small the world is. They Absolutely. might speak with an accent, but they're exactly like you. Yeah. And Dennis, just out of curiosity, because I've never been to one of these meets, um, yeah. like I know you have a performance slant on your running, um, but you also enjoy the social. Are there people there that are there primarily for the social and they don't care as much about performance? Most of the people are there for that. Most yeah. of the people oh, really? are there. Oh, yeah. They're, 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 don't forget, I'll give you an example. At, at, the, in, at the World 1500 Meters where I won the medal, there were 15 people in that race, but only four or five of them had a right. shot at a medal. The rest were yeah. there for fun, just to run the race okay. and, do, and all that other stuff. Not everybody is, who starts the race is in there for a medal. Most of the fields are there for other reasons, like enjoyment, entertainment, okay. being part of an incredible event. Yeah. I think that's important to just highlight because I do think that's one of the main barriers that keeps people out of giving it a try. You're right. right. People have said that to me. Well, if I go there, I'm going to look like I'm going to look like a fool. No, most of the people who are there are you. Right. You know, there's only a few of them there that, that are there that are me. Most are right. most are like you. Most are you. They're just middle of the pack, the end of the pack. This is not yep. the Olympic Games where it's only you don't have to qualify. You don't have to have a qualifying standard. Yep. This is your chance to go and do something yeah. that you've never done before, and run against people from all over the world, and they yes. are exactly the same as you. And who knows? You might surprise yourself and yeah. go do better than you did thought you would do, like you did in the fifteen hundred meter. And look what the doors open for you there, right? Yeah. 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 Don't not go because you think you're going to be outclassed. Because yeah. almost everybody there is outclassed. It's only two or three people who are at the highest highest level, and the rest are just average average runners who are just enjoying themselves going there and 
having a great yeah. time at the banquet and socializing after the one of the great parts of going to things is just socializing after the event. It's I think the best part for me is what happens after the race, right after the race. You're talking yeah. to your other competitors and you know, they're giving you switching pins and stuff with them and, and you're taking photographs. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. probably the most fun of the whole thing is what happens in the half an hour after the race. Right. And and there is like a good camaraderie, isn't there? The like even the, the, the two or f- yeah, like the three others, the, the top four that you were with, like you're shaking hands. Congratulations. Like it's it's very jovial and uh, it's friendly. Very jovial, yeah? very camaraderie. And you're taking pictures and you're getting a group photograph and all this yeah. stuff that goes on. So enjoy the post race because it's a memory you'll take with you for the rest of your life. Yeah. Wow. That's so awesome. Well, this has been an amazing conversation. I've been just spellbound the entire hour that we've been chatting. So as uh, you are likely aware, we end each episode with five rapid fire, just fun questions, just to get a little snippet of um, who you are. So are you ready to move into those questions, Dennis? I'm ready to go. Okay. (laughs) So the first one is, what is your favorite running mantra? Relax and do. That's because fast mm. running is about relaxing at maximum effort. Yes. I yes. like that a lot. And a lot of people don't know that, right? It's like you have to be relaxed. If you look at the 100 meter sprinters, like their face is totally relaxed. Everything's relaxed, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Do you have a favorite place to run? Like if you're just to be dropped anywhere on the planet to go for a run, where would it be? Well, my favorite place in Winnipeg is uh, Whittier Park in St. Boniface, about uh, 20 minutes mm-hmm. run from my place. Because you can run on the road, you can run on the track. Oh, not track, but you can run on the gravel. You can run on the trails. So that's the place where I would like to run, Winnipeg. I like where you can run on a variety of surfaces. Yes. Okay. So do you have a bucket list race on your radar? I do. Have you ever heard of the Falmouth Road Race? Cape Cod, Massachusetts, started in 1973. You run along the seashore. No. And then you have a beer Falmouth Road Race? Caroline, you got to look up the Falmouth Road Race. Well, Caroline might have. I'm a trail runner, so I haven't. So fill me in as a trail runner. Tell us about it. This is a seven-mile race uh, that starts from one uh, bar to another bar along, uh, along, ooh, the, uh, like- along <laughs> the coast of Cape, Cape Cod. It start, was started in 1973 by a bartender who was also a runner. And in the early 70s, you got guys like Frank Shorter and Bill Rogers to come out and run it, and it became a very uh-huh. famous race. Today, there's probably about 25,000 people who enter it. Oh, my. It's one of the most famous races in America. It's still going strong. Unfortunately, the, the, the founder of the race just passed away last year. It's almost impossible to get in uh, because there's always like three times as many people who want to go in as, as they, can, yeah. they can accommodate because it's running along a seashore in a, in a small town. So uh, they can't accommodate uh, 50,000 people. Well, thank you for opening our eyes to that one. I'm yes, going to look that okay. up. I'm going to have to look that up too. <laughs> okay. Do you have a favorite running book or movie? I do have both. Book, it's Running with the Buffaloes by Chris Lear. Mm-hmm. Love it. And it's a great cult classic. And my movie, Fire on the Track, the story of Steve Prefontaine. So the last question is, what is your favorite post-race indulgence? On a hot day, a nice cold beer. Not in the winter, but on a, on a really hot day. After a hard yeah. workout, come home, boy, that, that cold mm. beer tastes good. 
I don't think you're alone in that one. <laughs> That's for sure. So before we wrap up, I uh, just wanted to ask you what the strangest thing you've ever experienced in your 55 years of racing is. Okay, well, there is something, Carolyn. And I don't know how uh, you found uh, road racing, but uh, in my experience, road racing is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. And that was the case for me in the 1988 road race that I ran Bay to Bridges in San Francisco. The the Bay to Breakers road race at that time in the late 80s was one of the most famous races in America. It would always attract a very high quality elite field. And the year that I ran it, in 1988, the entries were 89,000 people. Wow. And a lot of the entrants, they dress in costumes and they dress in very elaborate costumes. If you want, if you wanted to have a, have a good uh, laugh, Google or go on the internet and Google beta breakers and see some of the costumes that people wear when they run that race. And another aspect of it is, do you know what a, you know what a centipede is in a race? Have you heard of a centipede? A centipede is a team of eight people connected together in running the race as one. And these centipedes, they also have all kinds of amazing costumes and decorations on their centipedes, like Chinese dragons and all kinds of elaborate things. Wow. So I go there to run the race. I don't know what to expect. So I'm going to the start line. And unfortunately, they did not have any uh, starting corrals where you could start with people who were running at your pace. And there's already tens of thousands of people there. And it's a relatively narrow four-lane street that you're running down. So I worked my way into the crowd. And I've got about 10,000 people in front of me. And we're jammed in there like sardines in a can, shoulder to shoulder. And I'm looking behind me. And as far as I can see, their heads. You, you can't see to the end of the heads. It's that long. Anyways, the race starts. And I start walking slowly, taking little steps. And then a little longer steps. And then a little bit of jogging. And a little bit of running. And finally, after about a mile and a half, I'm able to do a little bit of running. The, the, the field uh, thins out a bit. And you actually, I'm weaving my way in and out around people to try and get, get up higher in the field. I'm running on a sidewalk. I'm running all across the road diagonally and going forward, uh, trying to make progress going through the crowd. Anyways, at about the four-mile mark, the crowd had thinned out enough that you could see up ahead. And I see there's four people in front of me, two women and two men. And they're costumed in what I would call New Guinea mud people, you know, cannibals out of the jungle. They've got mud or cosmetic mud smeared all over their bodies and over their faces. And they, they just look like something that's just, just, just walked out of the jungle ready to eat you. Anyways, as I'm getting closer and closer and closer, I'm looking at the women and I can see they've got string bikinis on. So then string bikini, okay, that's, that's good. They're covering up. But I'm looking at the men. I can't see anything. From the back, I'm going, my God, these guys have really covered up well. I can't see anything around their waist. Anyways, as I'm passing them, I casually glance over to the men to see what's going on from the front. And they were totally naked. Oh, my God. (laughs) And let me tell you, they must have a score after a 12K road race because it doesn't just hang there. 
Now, do you think this was a oh, typical a typical goodness. sighting in in the Beta Breakers, or was this an odd thing in that particular well, year? You know, you know, San Francisco, San Francisco. Yeah. Is <laughs> this is San Francisco. We're talking anything. about. It was a, it was a, it was an anything goes ultra liberal culture there, and yeah, they yeah. didn't adhere to any social standards or mores or anything. <laughs> so I, I can, norms. And, and the funny thing was when I got back to my hotel. I, I turned the TV on at five o'clock to see if there was any TV coverage, and of course, the news media—they're going to cover this. Oh yeah. So they're ta- they're interviewing the two guys, and they say, "Oh, you mean they let you run the whole race naked?" And the guys, "Oh yeah, they, no, nobody bothered us." And when we finished, they just made us put towels around our waist. Oh. <laughs> San Francisco. Oh my goodness. That has got to be, I would vote that as the strangest thing I've ever heard. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great story. That's a great story to cap off some Mm -hmm. very incredible stories that you just shared with us tonight. So I think, um, your, your whole story is so powerful and such a good reminder about the value of hard work and consistency and just continuing to show up and, and seize every opportunity that's in front of you, right? So these are just attributes that really anyone can choose to leverage if they want to, mm-hmm. which I think is probably the biggest lesson of all. You don't have to be born with just the right genetics. Even an average runner can accomplish great things if they just keep on showing up. So it was just an absolute pleasure to speak with you tonight. And uh, thank you for taking the time to share this with us. It It was a lot of fun for me. And thank you so much for inviting me. 